Good morning. It is good to be with you. I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 12. If you are visiting, a special welcome to you. If you don't have a Bible, you will find one under the chairs scattered throughout the sanctuary. Please avail yourself of one. If you like sermon notes and outline, you'll find one in the church bulletin. The worship guide, they may or may not be of use to you. We're going to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper today, and so you will see the bread and the cup here before me. But we're going to take a, a long, not an arduous, but a long journey to get there. And where I want to begin is back in time, centuries ago, uh, the year specifically, many of you can guess it, 1517. There is a man named Martin Luther, a monk, a university professor, who is lecturing on the Apostle Paul's epistles. One day, this monk is reading Romans chapter 1, verse 17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. He's perplexed. The statement has his full attention. He is wrestling with this notion, this idea, that the revelation, the showing forth of God's righteousness is good news. How can it be good news? Specifically, how can it be good news for a sinner? Surely, the revelation of God's righteousness can only mean judgment can only mean condemnation. But as Luther continued to read, he came across these words. The righteous shall live by faith. And the, dawn, the light began to dawn upon his darkened soul. And Luther began to see that the gospel is the good news. That in Christ Jesus, God gives the righteousness demanded in the law. Luther began to realize, began to see that the righteous man, the righteous woman is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Years later, he penned the following words, oh, those who seek to earn the grace of God by their own efforts are trying to please God with their sin. Did you hear me? Did you hear him? Those who seek to earn the grace of God by their own efforts are trying to please God with their sins. It is impossible. Christ pleased God. Therefore, Christ is our only hope. Our only hope is to stand in Christ. Our only hope, as Luther articulated it so well, is to be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Luther's conversion soon became very public. Many of you know the story. Very public. A friar named Johann Tetzel is selling indulgences soon after Luther's conversion. 
the doctrine of indulgences rests on five principles. Listen carefully to these. Number one, when we sin, we alienate ourselves from God. That's the first principle. You sin, you're immediately cut off from God. Number two, in order to be restored to God, we must confess our sin and perform penance. That is a form of self-punishment. Number three, Christ and the saints, through their infinite virtue, have established a treasury of merits in heaven. They got pretty excited about this. Christ, Mary, the whole role of saints, they did what we could not do. And there is this treasure full of merit in heaven. Number four, the church has the authority to grant sinners the spiritual benefits of that treasure in the place of penance. How? Brings us to the most important point, number five. We can secure pardon for our sins by simply buying it. We can give money to the church, and the church in return, out of this treasury of merit, can pardon us of our sins. This was an indulgence. And this is what Johann Tetzel was selling to the people in Wittenberg. Luther, to put it mildly, uh, was perplexed. A Luther deeply troubled. The indulgences were so popular that many of his students skipped his classes in order to go by them. So he went to investigate. And on the eve of All Saints Day, October 31st, 1517, it's going to be quite something in two years, isn't it? We're almost at the 500th year anniversary, almost there. October 31st, 1517, Luther attaches to the door of the church at Wittenberg Castle. A list of 95 theses for debate on this particular subject, this practice of indulgences. I'm not going to read all 95 theses. I'll spare you the detail. Here's one of them. If the Pope has the authority to free souls from purgatory, why does the man not just do so? How are you going to respond to that logic? The theses are quickly translated from Latin into German, printed and distributed throughout the German Empire. It leads to a debate with a church champion known as John Eck in Leipzig, 1519. The course of this debate, extremely significant. Luther ends up denying the authority of the Pope outright and denying the infallibility of a general council. The papacy responds by condemning Luther's propositions and ordering that his books be publicly burned. Soon after, a papal decree is sent to Luther at Wittenberg informing him that he has two months to recant or face excommunication. He responds, Luther was quite the guy, he responds by burning the letter in public. A papal legate who's sent to investigate writes, all Germany is in revolution. Nine-tenths shout Luther as their war cry. And the other tenth cares nothing about Luther and simply cries death to the court of Rome. In this highly charged atmosphere, the emperor, German emperor, Charles V, 
convenes his first diet, fancy word for council, at Worms. He summons Luther to appear. When ordered to recant, Luther replies as follows. I am bound by the scriptures. And my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. And the rest, as you know it, is history. Here we are, almost 500 years later. This morning, I want us to hone in and ponder on Luther's phrase. Here it is again. I am bound by the scriptures. And my conscience is captive to the word of God. Please note, Luther was not uttering a cry for religious freedom. Luther was not uttering a cry for civil liberty. It's often how he's interpreted today. Luther was not uttering a cry for individual rights. What was he saying? Here it is in a sentence. Luther was acknowledging that his conscience was now free from the chains of the humanistic thinking that gripped the world of his day. And that his conscience was now subject in totality to God's word. Here it is again, his statement. I am bound by the scriptures and my conscience is captive to the word of God. How we need to take that to heart in our day and how wonderful it is that we discover precisely what Luther was saying in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Look at it. Look at what Paul declares in this portion of the epistle. And compare it. Compare it with Luther's declaration. As he stood trial, as he stood before the very emperor 500 years ago. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Romans chapter 12 verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, what the Apostle Paul does here is pretty simple. He identifies two patterns. Pattern number one, pattern number two. We see this first pattern in the very opening statement. Again, verse 2 of Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world. And so here, the Apostle Paul is describing a pattern. To be more specific, he is identifying a way of thinking. A way of thinking. Two questions. First is this, so that we can understand this way of thinking. Question number one, obviously, is what is this world of which he is speaking? Clearly, he's not referring to the terrestrial earth, the physical, the material. As a matter of fact, you go back into the original language and you discover that the word is ion. The word literally means age. Do not be conformed to this age. 
You look at what Paul says elsewhere in his epistles and you'd soon discover that there are two ages. This is extremely important for Christians to grasp. There are two ages identified in Scripture. The first age is this, the present age. What is it? It's the fallen creation, including fallen humanity, the old humanity in Adam. That's the present age, the fallen creation, humanity as he, as man stands fallen in his first ancestor, Adam. But there is, Paul says, an age to come. What is the age to come? It's the new creation, the renewed creation, the new humanity, which has as its head, not Adam, but the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is the present age and there is the age to come. Now, here is what is extremely tricky, somewhat complicated. Many of you have heard me explain it before. It is worth hearing again, working through it and being clear on this. Let me put it to you by way of question. What is this present age? Or rather, when did it begin? Well, it began at the fall. It began with Adam's sin. When will it end? Listen carefully. It will end at Christ's second coming. So from Adam's fall to Christ's second coming, we have the present age. Fallen, corrupt creation. Fallen, corrupt humanity with Adam standing as its head. That is the present age. What is the age to come? When did it begin? Now listen carefully. It began at Christ's first advent. It began with his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation at the right hand of his father, where now he is seated above all rule and authority and power and dominion, not only in this age, but in the age to come, says the apostle Paul in Ephesians 1. When will it give way, this present age, to the age to come? At Christ's second advent. And so Christ has already established the age to come at his first advent. Advent, he inaugurated it. Now it is spiritual, it is invisible. But when Christ returns and does away with the old creation and the cosmos is completely renewed, there's a new heavens, a new earth, that, that age to come established at his first advent will be consummated and that spiritual invisible kingdom will give way to a physical visible kingdom. Are you with me? Can you picture it in your mind's eye? Because here's what you must get and we must understand as Christians. It means that right now we live with the tension of being in two ages. That's why life is so hard. We live with the tension of being caught in two ages. We belong to the age to come. But we're living in the present age. Paul says what? Do not be conformed to this world. You belong to the age to come. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You belong to a kingdom that has already been inaugurated and it will be consummated when it comes again. Until then, oh, the tension 
of living in a fallen world, this present age, the world. That is what Paul has in view here in terms of this first pattern of thinking. Do not be conformed to this world. Well, what does it mean to be conformed to this world? The world, the present age, from Adam's fall until Christ's second return is characterized in every generation by the same thing. It is this, a system of views, a system of views, a system of values, expectations, goals, convictions, actions, which make man the focus while relegating God to the periphery. It is secularism. That is the spirit of the age. It has been the spirit of every age. It takes multiple forms, certainly throughout the generations, but the overarching characteristic of the present age, the world has been, is, and will continue to be this determination on the part of man to live life Define reality apart from his creator. Paul is saying, do not be conformed. Do not be conformed to this world. We're conformed to this world when we think like it and therefore act accordingly. This is the greatest threat to the church in our day. I think I said this not too long ago. Greatest threat to the church today is not the redefinition of marriage, however we might lament that. The greatest threat to the church, God's people today, is, um, is not the abortion debate and controversy, however disheartening and perplexing that might be. Greatest threat to the church is not the loss of prayer from the public schools. It's not whether or not we have a Christian president. The greatest threat to the church is not localizing any of these things. The greatest threat to the church is, as it has always been, that it will be infiltrated and overrun by a spirit of secularism. And we already see it in our day. How do we see it in our day? Simply as follows. God lies too inconsequential upon the people of God. He lies too inconsequential upon the people of God. One author has put it as follows. No, God's truth is too distant. Too distant. Abstract. Dare I say it? Irrelevant. God's grace is too ordinary. God's judgment is too benign. God's gospel is too easy. And God's Christ is too common. These are fruits of the spirit of the age as that spirit begins to infiltrate and overrun the people of God. That is a pattern of thinking. It is a way of thinking. And Paul's commandment is crystal clear. Do not be conformed to this world. J.B. Phillips, translator of the New Testament, put it as follows. Beautiful. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. You want to hear it again? Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. 
its pattern of thinking, its value system, values, expectations, views, perspectives, convictions. That's pattern number one. Pattern number two is found in the rest of the verse. As opposed and opposite to the world's way of thinking. Now we have God's way of thinking, the rest of the verse. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. Three questions. Here's the first one. What does it mean to be transformed? Great place to start. Interesting little study. You look for that word that's used here in the rest of the New Testament. You're going to find it in three places. You'll find it in Matthew's gospel account, and you'll find it in Mark's gospel account. In both instances, it refers to the same thing, the transfiguration. It's the same word used here. Same word used to describe Christ's transfiguration while upon the mount is the word here that is translated transform, transformation. It is actually the term from which we get our English word metamorphosis. Isn't that interesting? Metamorphosis, whereby a caterpillar turns into what? A butterfly. It is a complete transformation. The substance isn't eradicated. But there's a transformation of the substance into something it formerly wasn't. And that's what we see there at the Lord Jesus Christ happening upon the Mount of Transfiguration as the cloud descends and there's that visible light and he shines like white. We behold what? The resplendent glory of Christ's deity. We find it in one other place in the New Testament from the pen of Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He writes the following, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Metamorphosis. This is what the Spirit of God is doing in the people of God. It began the moment we were born again. It's called regeneration. It continues now through the process of what's known as sanctification. It will culminate, you know it, in what? Glorification. We will see the Lord Jesus as he is and we will be like him. The transformation will be complete. The metamorphosis will be finalized. And Paul here in Romans 12, 2 is giving us this exhortation in sharp contrast to that first pattern of thinking. The way this world thinks, this present age, I want you to understand you belong to the age to come and you're to live accordingly right now in the midst of this world, this present age. And here's how you do it. It is by being transformed, changed. You're not today the person you were yesterday. You know, we, we often hear, you know, God just accepts me as I am. Not quite right. God accepts you just as you are so that he can change you into what you aren't. He accepts us to change us. He saves us to change us. He saves us to transform us. He has purchased for himself a people, a possession. This people for himself, the apple of his eye, a people zealous for good works. 
And so Paul is saying, look, you need to be active here. Yes, it's a fruit of the Spirit of God working in us. Yes, it's a result of us understanding the grace and mercy of God in our lives, active in our lives. But here's what you must do. You must be transformed. Second question is this. Well, how are we transformed? It doesn't leave us hanging. He tells us, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He doesn't hone in on our experiences. He doesn't zero in on our emotions. He goes right after the mind. Why? Because our perception of reality as part of the old creation, the world, the present age, perception of reality is severely limited, darkened, and distorted. And when the Spirit of God shines His light upon the people of God through the Word of God, the first transformation takes place in the realm of the mind. Where there's just that little creak of light in the midst of the darkness. That which was just kind of all out of whack and, and misunderstood, misperceived before. There's greater clarity. And Paul's point is, look, this transformation must continue. And here's where it must continue above all other places. It is in the realm of the mind. If we give in to a perception of reality that is distorted by the present age, the world, it will dictate our thoughts. It will dictate our desires, our affections, our words, our values, our actions. Hence Paul's admonition, strong encouragement. No, you, Christian, as a believer, you be transformed. And here's how you are to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How are our minds renewed? I hope you know the answer to that question. Or I'm in for a very depressing afternoon. You know what the answer to that question is? It's Romans 1 through 11, what we've been doing for the past year and a half, or however long it's been. That's how the mind is renewed. The mind is renewed as the mind is immersed in the Word of God. And as the Spirit of God takes the Word of God, granting understanding, illumination, granting application, whereby the affections follow suit, and the life is brought into greater conformity with that Word. Hence this emphasis, this onus upon the mind. In the light of Romans 1 through 11, as we wrestle with these truths and grasp these truths, we have biblically informed, governed answers to the most important questions. Who am I in the light of Romans 1 through 11? My identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. What has Paul emphasized repeatedly there? In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Who am I? I'm a believer. I'm someone who lives, exists, thrives in Christ. One who has been made one with him, spiritually speaking, by the Spirit of God. This is my identity. That's the answer to my question, who am I? What am I doing? Let me just pause there for a moment and ask you, what are you doing? What, what am I doing here? What purpose does today have? What function will tomorrow serve? What are my goals? What are my aspirations? What am I living for? What am I hoping for? How do chapters 1 through 11 of Romans inform my answers to those questions? Where am I going? 
Paul spoke in very clear terms back in Romans 5 of the hope of glory. In Romans 8, he put it there before us, didn't he? He spoke of that coming day, the renovation of the cosmos, the redemption of our bodies. All creation is groaning, waiting in anticipation for the revelation of the sons of God. Do you understand where you're going? Do we comprehend our destiny? What do I want? I mean, really, what do I want? What do I value? How am I living as the mind is renewed, immersed in the Word of God? The Bible begins to inform our answers, determine our answers, mold, shape our answers to these and other questions. And as the mind is renewed, we are transformed. And what's the result? It brings us to the third question. Well, why are we transformed? Look at the rest of the verse. That, it's a purpose clause, that by testing, the idea there is discernment, that we might have a little discernment. By testing, you may discern what specifically? What is the will of God for you? What is it God wants of us? And he adds to it right at the end of the verse. What is good and acceptable? And perfect. Two patterns of thinking. The way the world thinks, the present age. The way God thinks, the age to come. And Paul's exhortation, admonition to us is what? We're not to flee from this world. We're not to abandon society and join the monastic movement. We're not to check out and just leave things to go however they please. No, we are to infiltrate the world, the present age, as those who belong to the age to come. And as Luther, as Luther stood at that diet before Charles V, the emperor of the German Empire, I don't know if he had this text running through his mind as he uttered those words, but he certainly had a biblically informed perspective. And as he uttered those words, my conscience is bound. My conscience is held captive to the word of God. He was certainly expressing consciously, subconsciously, I don't know the essence of what Paul is saying here. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now I beg you, I plead with you to bear in mind the context. You go with me just for a moment back into the first verse. And by way of remembrance, you look at what Paul says there. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. As Paul gives these foundational commandments in verses 1 and 2, foundational in that they will set the stage for everything that's coming in verse 3 all the way through to the middle of chapter 15. As he sets this foundation, we must never detach it, divorce it from that phrase he himself utters, uses right there in the first verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. You see, as Paul gives these commandments, 
He isn't trying to impose upon us something that is distasteful to us. He isn't trying to impose upon us something that runs contrary even to what we want to do. He isn't trying to make us do something grudgingly, complainingly. What is he doing? He is simply emphasizing what is the reasonable response to the mercies of God as he has defined them, explained them, expounded them in the first 11 chapters of this epistle. He wants us to keep in mind that God foreknew us, his people, even before the foundation of the world. He wants us to bear in mind that God had a wonderful plan for us. He predestined us to be conformed, transformed into the likeness of his son. He wants us to see God's mercy in that. He wants us to see the mercy of God in the incarnation, whereby the Son of God humbled himself, whereby the Son of God veiled his glory, took the form of a servant, and was obedient even to the point of death. He wants us to never forget his suffering. He wants us to never lose sight of his atoning work and his mercy as revealed in his son culminating in Calvary's cross. And he wants us to never forget that there was a moment as Christians when God called us. His mercy put into action. His grace made manifest in our lives where he gave us eyes to see and ears to hear. He never wants us to forget that having been made one with Christ, we're now justified in the sight of God. Justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He wants us to grasp our identity in Christ as it culminates in that wonderful expression, adopted as sons. Oh, it's just mercy upon mercy. He wants us to live daily in the reality of that age to come, the hope of glory, and understand God is going to finish what he began in us and comprehend that until that day, there is nothing, absolutely nothing in the created order that can separate us from his love in Christ Jesus. With all that in place, that foundation firmly rooted upon which we now stand, Paul says, by these mercies simply ask you to be reasonable. That's all he's saying. I simply ask you to be reasonable. Present your lives, entire beings, as a living sacrifice. And on top of that, recognize this. You belong to the age to come. Yes, living in the present age. I know it's terrible. It's tension-filled. But here's how you're to do it. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed. By the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our Father, we bow before you. We seek now your blessing upon your word as it has gone forth. And as creatures, we are dependent upon our creator. As sinful creatures, we are dependent upon our Redeemer to grant us understanding. And so this we do pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you and in the knowledge of your will. We pray, our Father, that Christ might be exalted and magnified in our minds, in our hearts, and consequently in our lives. And as a result, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done.
To the glory and in the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask it. Amen.